Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. This is our third week in our series on emotional healing. And, and quite often when I do this series, people come up to me and say, you know, I really don't need emotional healing. And I always find that the ones who say that need it the most. Because they're not in touch with how broken they really are. And they're not aware of how the bankruptcy emotionally is coming out in behaviors and attitudes and actions that are anything but the fullness of what Christ has for us as believers. And so when I began to realize how broken I was and I I, I crashed and burned, I began to ask the Lord, please lead me and guide me into a place of being both emotionally mature and also wise and healthy. And he took me to the scriptures. And one of the scriptures that is probably one of the, for me, the key descriptors of emotional healing is from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, it starts around verse 21, about halfway through, where Paul says, the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So here Paul says that if you are a believer, that one of the key things for your emotional and spiritual maturity is to recognize that you have an old self, an old self that is attached to and attracted to your old way of living and thinking, And that in every aspect of that old self, you are corrupt. And the desires and the needs that you have, which are legitimate, real desires and needs that every human has, because of this old self, every one of those desires has been corrupted. That your emotions have been corrupted. That your your needs and the way you, you, you broker your own needs is a corruption. See that? The issue many of us don't realize is that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And we have to deal with that old nature. Now, this is where the Apostle Paul is making it clear that just being religious is not enough. You cannot rehabilitate your old self. You can't simply reform it. As a matter of fact, it would be like putting ornaments on a Christmas tree. You know that the tree has been cut off from its source of life, and it looks pretty until all the, all the, you know, the pine all dries up and starts falling off, and then you've got ornaments on a dead tree. And so Paul says the only thing you can do with your old self is to put it off like you put off a dirty kind of shirt or a dirty pair of pants and you put it off you take it off another place he says it is only worthy to be crucified you must die to your old self in order to live in Christ and so Paul says here's how you live in Christ you have to be renewed he says in the spirit of your minds here's what he means by this your emotions are a reflection or a diagnostic tool of what you really believe and what you really value. 
and what you really trust in. So the battle is actually for the way you think and for the way you believe, for what you commit to, for what you value. Because if what you believe is not right, what you feel will not be true. If what you believe is not true, then what you feel will not be real. And so Paul says there's a battle going on that your healing cannot be passively received but must be actively chosen. That you have to begin to look at your thoughts, look at your beliefs, look at what you value and say, is that part of my new self or is that my old self clinging on with its corruption? And then Paul says this, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Your true self is the true you that you always want it to be. You will always recognize yourself, but it will be you without all the things that keep you from relationship with God. It will be you without that impurity, that corruption, but rather you in right standing with God and you with a holiness and a beauty like you never had before. But this is appropriated by faith. You have to put off the old. You can't just patch the new into the old. The old has to be put off so the new can be put on. So here, here basically is what emotional healing is. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. So I want you to look at your neighbor. They don't even have to be your friend. Look at your neighbor. Look at him. Come on. Get your most righteous voice. Get your most righteous voice. And I want you to say this to them. You need to. You need to. I, I wasn't convinced. Come on. You need to. You need to. Put, off put off your old self. And put on your new self. Put on your new self. Do it again one more time. You need to. You need to. Put off your old self. Put on your new self. And if you're married to them, go right now. Oh, sorry. You enjoyed that way too much. All right, so when you put off your old self, what are you putting off? See, the issue for many people is they try to change their behavior. They try to make certain changes of behavior. But the real issue when you're putting off your old self are root issues. And the root issues that Paul is getting at in saying get, get at this old self and get it off of you is he's really dealing with Three things, I think, primarily. One is that because of your old life, because of who you were, you have guilt. You have shame in your life. This is an identity issue, and all root issues are identity issues. And so you, there has to be a putting off of guilt. But also, because you've been in this world, and because you've been hurt, and because there's a way that you were made when you're, you feel like injustice has been done to you or unfairness has been done, there's a part of us that begins to protect ourselves. And one of the natural ways that we protect ourselves is with anger. And when anger uh, abides in us or, or becomes a protector or a root, it becomes bitterness. And bitterness becomes a root that has to be pulled out for you to have a heart that has capacity to receive. And so not only do we have to put off guilt, but we have to put off bitterness. And then also we have to be able to put off our fear. Because at the root of all our guilt is fear. At the root of all of our bitterness is fear. Do you know, when people are bitter, instead of being able to have faith, 
They have skepticism. They have cynicism. They have to protect themselves by not trusting. Bitterness leads to dullness of heart. It leads to numbness. No one gets gets numb because they're so happy they're numb. They get numb because they're in such pain. Guilt causes pain. When people feel guilty, they often go into even more sin because they feel like they've already lost the battle so much. And so I want to... I want to say to you today, I know I'm asking a lot of you to track with me on this, and I'm going to ask an awful lot of you, but I'm saying today you need to put off your guilt. Today you need to put off your bitterness. Today today you need to put off your fear. And Jesus tells us that one of the, 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 uh, the great stories, one of the great healings, he tells us in this story that ultimately what every person needs at the base of their, their emotional well-being is you need forgiveness. Is that you need to know that you're forgiven. And then as you know that you're forgiven, then you are able to extend forgiveness to others. And this is the mark of a heart that has capacity for great joy. Is a heart that knows it is forgiven and a heart that distributes forgiveness. And Jesus teaches us this through this healing story. In Mark chapter 2, there are these friends who bring to Jesus a paralyzed man. A friend of theirs is paralyzed. They want to get this man to Jesus. As a matter of fact, they are so convinced that if they get their friend to Jesus, he will heal him, that they cut a hole in the roof of the building where they are, and they lower their friend down to Jesus because they can't get close to him. So as Jesus sees the faith of these friends, he stops everything else that he's doing. He addresses this paralyzed man. And he says to him something so shocking and so surprising. Now, think about this with me. The presenting problem is the guy can't walk. The presenting problem is that he's paralyzed. The expectation then is Jesus is going to cause him to walk. That Jesus is going to say something like this. Take up your bed and walk. But that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. He wants to walk. Why are you forgiving his sins? He needs his legs to work. Well, why would Jesus say this? Because Jesus says this is his ultimate need. His ultimate need is to be forgiven. Even if his legs work, but he dies in his sin, who cares? He's going to not just make a temporary fix. He's going to change this man's life forever. So Jesus forgives him. Now, now this is an example in this story of how aggressive the grace of Jesus is. If If you've ever wrestled with, have I prayed the right prayer? Have I confessed enough of my sin? Have I repented enough? This story is awesome. This guy doesn't even confess his sin. This guy doesn't even repent of his sin. Jesus aggressively says to him, your sins are forgiven without the guy even having any kind of formula prayer. Why is that? Because, friends, Jesus knows his heart. Look at what it says in the the text. It says, Jesus knew men's hearts. So... (laughs) There are a lot of people who will have prayed the right prayer who are going to say, 
Lord, Lord, did we not pray the right prayer? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because it's not the right prayer. It's the right heart. It's the heart that says, I need forgiveness. It's the heart that admits, I am guilty. Someone, oftentimes people ask me the question, like, someone has a lot of guilt. What should I, how should I help them? <laughs> Get them to own their guilt. Get them to admit they don't just feel guilty. They are guilty. Look, look, listen to me. We're living in a society that's taking away every rule because they believe if every rule is taken away and nothing is right and nothing is wrong, then no one will have any guilt. And yet you take away all the rules and we still feel guilty. I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but I remember no matter what I did in school, even if I got an A, there was something inside of me that said, you could have done more. You could have done better. Every time I played a, I played a sport or did anything else, I always thought to myself, I should have spent another hour training. I should have worked harder. There's something within you. You can take away all the external rules. There's still something in you that has guilt, that has shame. And until you face that guilt, then the capacity you have for other more positive, more powerful emotions will not be there. So Jesus says, this is your ultimate need. This is what you need is to know that your sins are forgiven. Now, hold on. Hold on, the religious cellular said. Wait a minute. Who are you, they said, to forgive this man's sin? Only God can forgive sins. So here's what Jesus is teaching them. One theologian put it this way. Try to, try to picture this with me. There are three men come into a room. All right, man one walks up to man two, punches him in the nose. The nose breaks, it's bleeding, it's a bloody mess, you know. And, and man three walks up to man one and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, man two would go, dude, he didn't hit you. He hit me. And I don't forgive him. You see, the only one who can forgive is the one who took the punch. What Jesus is saying is when you sin, when you lie, when you commit adultery, when you, when you lust, when you, when you have hated people in your heart, you were punching Jesus. David said, against you and you only have I sinned? So the only one who can really forgive you is the one who took the punch. And Jesus is saying here, all sin that you've ever committed has always been against him. It's he who has a bloody nose, not anybody else. And so then he goes, are you tracking? Come on, this is important. You get this. Um, then he says... Okay, you guys are upset that I'm saying his sins are forgiven. Let me, let me ask you a question, Jesus says. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk? Now, if you read commentators, you'll realize we still don't know the answer to that question. Both of these are incredibly hard. To really forgive sins and to take a paralyzed person and see their legs recreated, regenerated, all of this happen. Both are impossible, really. And yet Jesus says this, he says, so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins. 
I'm going to show you my power over paralyzed legs. Take up your bed and walk. What an amazing moment. But this is what I want you to get from this. Notice how he phrases his statement to the religious leaders. He says, is it easier to say? He uses that word say. Guess what that means? It means that he is referring them to the fact that God's word is his action. That God's word is his way of doing things. God didn't before creation sit around having a, 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 a confab or this long, lengthy conversation. God said sun and there was a sun. God said moon and there was a moon. God said earth. God said sea. God said all of these things. All he did was say it and it was. So when God says to you, your sins are forgiven, his word is his action. Now, there are many Christian cliches that I hate, but one of them that I hate the worst is God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I just, I, I, who are you? And who cares? You settle nothing. See, what Jesus is saying, if God says it, it's settled. Even if you don't believe it, even if you want to be an idiot for the rest of your life, It's still true. Now you get to choose, will I live in the lie or will I live in the truth? Paul says the truth is in Jesus. And therefore you can put off your old self because Jesus spoke. And when he speaks, it's action. And he says to the worst of you and the best of you, he says, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away. And if you cling to that old guilt and that old shame, you're doing yourself a disservice. He who has the power to make the legs work has spoken over you so that your heart will work. He's aggressive in his grace. I am personally seen and experienced his aggressive grace. When I was was in my 20s, I did not understand how to put off the old man. I was trying to be a religious old self. I was trying to get his approval. I was trying to prove that I was worthy of his love. And so I gave myself to ministry. I gave myself to the mission field. And so I took my family um, as missionaries to, to plant churches in Mexico City with the old self still fully intact, it seemed like. And I got into situations where I realize now how aggressive His grace was for me, even when I didn't understand it. So here's what happened. I was in Costa Rica, and I was learning Spanish, and I adored Spanish. It was the greatest joy. I'm pretty sure Spanish is what's spoken in heaven. Uh, I adored it. I loved it. I mean, it was, I loved the people. I loved the culture. I was obsessed with it, and I was learning very rapidly. But my, I was 27. My team leader was about 33. He was the one who had recruited me to go to Mexico City to plant churches. And uh, within the first six weeks of, of working together, he could not hear anything in Spanish, and he couldn't speak anything in Spanish. So 
So he asked me to help him because I was learning quickly. And he asked, so we started working together. And after about six weeks, he looked up from the books where we were studying and he looked me in the eye and he said, Mike, I've grown to hate you. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This isn't in the missionary handbook, you know. I thought a minimum requirement for missionaries would be love one another. And he just goes, I, I've grown to hate you. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but I, I'm, you know, I'm just letting you know. I'm like, thanks a lot. What do I do with that information? So over the next couple of years, he proved every day that he hated me. I mean, we would, we, everything we did was, was full of his hatred. Well, I'm a pretty competitive person, so if you hate me, I'm going to hate you better than you hated me. <laughs> so I responded to his hate with hate. And uh, I brought it home every day. I'd come home and I'd say to Lisa, oh, you will not believe what he said to me. You won't believe what he did to me today. My wife has loved me throughout our marriage, but I haven't always understood her love. And one of the things that she did as one who loved me is she always tried to buffer me with the people I was in conflict with, which was kind of a constant in certain periods of our life. And so I would say to her, I would say, he's done this to me. And she looked at me with the love that she had for me and the practicality that is Lisa. And she said this. She said, then you either have to deal with that or we need to leave. And so I hated her, too. (laughs) Because here was, I I mean, this is what this is what I felt at that time. In my old self, is if, if you don't hate what I hate, you don't love me. Come on now, I'm saying this out loud. Some of you, some of you got it. I'm just owning it. So here I got this great wife, I have this great family, and I hate them. And I hate my job, and I hate my team leader. Guess what happens when you do that? All kinds of other things start coming in. Starts coming in. Guilt, shame. You know, everything that you said you would never do becomes very appealing to you. Becomes very attractive to you. And so instead of dealing with the pain, it causes even more pain, more guilt, more shame. So I came to the end of, my, of, of myself in this. And I heard a voice very clearly say, you would be better off dead than alive. And as I took a trip from Mexico City to the border to renew my visa, I figured out how I could make it look like an accident. And uh, I had it all planned out, and the night I was going to do it, suddenly something began to happen. And I've heard it described, and for me it was a dark night of the soul. Fear came over me. Sweats came over me. All kinds of things started to happen. But then in the hotel where I was, I heard the voice of God audibly. And the first time I'd ever heard his voice, and he said just something very simple. He said, Mike, I love you. And at first, uh, I would say for almost three years, I just focused on, man, in the worst time when I was performing my worst, when I had my worst guilt, when I had my worst shame, all of my secrets, all of this, this, this yucky stuff in my heart. And he's speaking to me that he loved me. Not when I was at my best. Not when I was doing well. Even when I was contemplating one of the worst of sins to kill myself. He says, I love you. But that wasn't the only thing that touched me. After, after the many years, began to realize he had spoken my voice like nobody else ever spoke my voice. 
So much so that I knew exactly who it was that was speaking to me. Now, I don't know if you understand this, but there are people in your life who speak your name like nobody else does. Like my mother, she, I would always know what my mother thought in the moment by the way she called me. So if it's Mike, well, I'm safe. If it's Michael Wayne Plunkett, <laughs> I know I'm in trouble. You know, There's something about the people in your life, the way they call your name, that you know the relationship. And when he called my name, for the first time it became real, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. He was aggressive in his grace. And what I learned out of that, because of allowing his word, his word became action in my life. And it became a foundation for change. And so this is what I really realized I had allowed. Look at Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's the only place in the Bible I know that it says this so directly, that when you do not deal with your anger, you give the opportunity of Satan to come in and have access to all of you. Let no bitterness, no wrath, anger, clamor, slander, let none of that stay with you. That's your old self. That's your old way of protecting yourself. That's your old power source. So will you track with me? We're going to first we're saying put off your guilt. But now we're saying put off your bitterness. So can we unpack that a bit? Because you need to understand what it is that anger is and what it does and why it's so powerful. Now, there are a lot of people, I grew up with this, that said Christians should never be angry. Christians don't get angry kind of a thing. Well, I'm angry with those who taught that Christians (laughs) should not be angry. You understand anger here is said to be something you must deal with it. You can't suppress it. You can't deny it. You see, you cannot get free by lying. When you lie and say, I'm not angry, you're not going to get free. When you refrain and restrain, what you're actually doing is you're really creating to where your soul has a root of bitterness Because you will not speak the truth about how angry you are. Are you you hearing me in this? And again, can I just say to you, you have a limited capacity for passion, for emotion, for joy, for love. If there's a root of bitterness, there's no room. Even when the Holy Spirit spills out his joy, it just goes right out of you because the bitterness is taking up its space. And bitterness will not make you a better person or a better life. Now, unless you you think I'm wrong in this, notice in the scripture, God gets angry. God deals with sin in wrath and in anger. So anger in itself is not bad. But what happens is anger can go bad. And the scripture says, be angry, but sin not or do not sin. So what is sinful anger? Well, verse 31 says it's bitterness, it's rage, it's internal anger, it's brawling, it's slander. So think about this with me, that that anger is an energy that comes when it's provoked from within. So uh, chemically, it'd be adrenaline and other things, but emotionally, 
When you're angry, there's an energy that's building up and that has to be released in some way. And what Paul says is that if you you keep it all inside as a rage or you keep it internally, then it will be released on you in a negative way. Now, I did a little study on this, and there was a cardiologist that I read that said every one of his patients, his male patients, who died from heart attacks had had a fight with their wife the day they died. That they had gotten so angry and so full of rage and they did not release it that the heart could not stand the shock of it and they had died. So every time Lisa fusses at me, I go, it's the big one. I could go today. Actually, that's Fred Sanford, and some of you are too young to know that, but uh, all us old people. <laughs> Elizabeth, I'm coming to you. But, I mean, those, there are many of us who turn it inside, but there are others of us. We are looking for a fight everywhere we go. We'll, we'll, even, we'll even jump on people who've done just minor things because we have such a reservoir of anger. We have such a reservoir of pain that we want it released by temper tantrums and, and, and fights and conflicts and yelling and all of these things. So, so many of us will blow up and then we feel better and everybody else around us is kind of devastated by it. So let's, let's look at this now. I can't make you start questioning your emotions, but I can tell you this. If you will ask the right questions about your emotions, you will begin to have power over them. And one of the questions is this, is what has provoked the energy of anger in you? And so you could ask this question, what is it I'm defending what is it I'm protecting and, and why am I attacking this? Why, why is this bringing up such energy in me? Now, I'm going to give you a silly illustration of it. But on Saturdays, I like to get away. I love to go to a coffee shop or somewhere and just sit. It's really good when the coffee's good. And uh, sit and just pray and get ready for, for the weekend for Saturday night. So yesterday I had mine. I was going to go to this one place. And I go to this place, and I guess everybody else was going to pray and get their sermon ready, too. (laughs) Because this place was packed. And so I drive up, and I notice that people uh, in front of me, the people in front of me are getting their car, and they're going to open a parking space. So I think, oh, good, I'm getting a parking space. Now, I don't know if you studied your Bible carefully, but there's parking etiquette in the Bible. (laughs) And it's in King James, and it says this. Once thou hast passed a parking space, thou may not back up and take the space of the person waiting in the proper and appropriate place, or thou shalt be smitest. Of course, it's not there, just in case. But I'm saying to you, in my head, I realized I have a law about parking. And those people weren't following it. And energy was being, uh, energy was starting to stir up in me. And then I look at it and say, what am I defending? Why am I getting so upset about parking? One, they're not, I could blow my horn, I could cuss at them, I could do all these things. And they still have the parking spot. But I will have lost my peace. 
You see, I'm giving you a very simple one, but what I'm saying to you is every single day there are scenarios in your head and people are never doing what you think they ought to do and then you're offended or you're upset or you're hurt. You're upset with their tone of voice. You're upset with their nonverbal communication. It's fascinating to me because I I look at all of you as I'm preaching and there are many of you that are stone walls. I mean, there's no way to read. As far as I know, you hate me. (laughs) You have no interest in what I'm saying whatsoever. And then often what will happen is some of you will come up to me, you stone walls, afterwards and go, that just changed my life. And I'm like, I got to quit. I got to quit saying I know what they're thinking. Do you understand what this is? See, what happens is by adding all these up, it becomes bitterness. Nobody, nobody listens. Nobody does what I want them to do. No one ever really understands me or knows me. And before long, what happens is you have a deep reservoir of pain that becomes a root of bitterness in your soul. And unless you start asking these questions, what am I defending? Why am I so provoked? And then you have to get at what's the hardest of this is you don't realize your motivations are not truth and justice. Your motivations are ego. Why did they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? I don't let anybody do that to me. Let me let me tell you an oath that people make. I will never let anyone take advantage of me again. That's ego. I will never let anyone do that to me again. That's ego. And it's impossible. What you're doing is you're using bitterness, which will destroy you, thinking it will empower you. That's why Paul says, put it off, put it off. Are you tracking with me on that? So let's go a little deeper then. Here is what I've found is that at the root of all guilt, at the root of all your bitterness is always fear. See, fear is a natural response that we have when our needs, which are real needs, and our desires, which are legitimate desires, when they're not met. Our unmet desires, particularly and needs, particularly if you lived in an environment of neglect or you lived in an environment of abuse, what that does is fracture your soul. What it does is make it hard for you to connect. Though you keep trying to connect, it becomes more and more difficult. And often what it does is causes you to only be attracted to people that will hurt you. Because fear is not your friend. So when these unmet expectations and other things are there in your life, we are, without knowing it often... We're very in touch with our deepest core fears. And here's, after years of looking at that, I think you can boil your core fears down to two. The first is this, that many, many of us have experienced the sense that nobody really knows me. Nobody really understands me. I might feel like I understand everybody else and I know exactly what to say or do for everybody, but no one ever really touches me in that place where I feel safe and I feel loved and I feel understood. And that, that fear is the fear of being disconnected. Some people will express it to me this way. They'll say, I can be in a room of 100 people and still feel like I'm all by myself. 
There are people that are trying so hard to get others to connect that they'll actually offer themselves almost as slaves to others. I'll do anything for you. And then they realize, but as they do that, the pers- these people are using them. And so instead of feeling connected, they just feel used. And this is such a powerful fear, but the other one's more powerful. And it's that feeling and it's the need that we all have to have some measure of control in our lives. To feel like we have some power to be ourselves and some power to do what we feel like we want to do or need to do. And when you feel powerless, it is the most fracturing of things, particularly when you're a child. If there was rape, if there was sexual abuse, if there was physical abuse or verbal abuse, if there was just even simple things that made you feel like I have no choices, I have no control. My, I loved my grandfather in many ways, but there was this one thing he would do where he would hold me down and I hated it so much because he wouldn't let me go. And I thought, I'm going to grow up and beat you up, old man. <laughs> you understand that feeling of powerlessness And it's not just when you're a child. It can be you feel it in your marriage or you feel it at your job. Do you understand when I was in Mexico with my team leader, I felt powerless. And all I wanted was power. And so anger was seductive. Hate was seductive because it made me feel like I had power in the midst of my powerlessness. This is the core fear that drives so many of us. It's why we feel so guilty. It's why we feel such bitterness is because basically we're really afraid. And here, I mean, ultimately the fear is this, that I'm going to go through things and there's nobody there who's going to go through them with me. Or things are going to come my way and I won't be able to handle it. Can you hear me a little bit today? So let me ask you this question. In your pain, what does it look like? Let me give you a few words to kind of express what pain looks like. Confusion, sadness, disconnection, anger. I was confused, so I say confusion again. (laughs) Worry, rage, frustration, horror, embarrassment. See, I believe that if you, and I've seen this, if you can start naming your pain, you get more control over it. Because whatever you can name, you can let go of. And you can give it to the Lord. See, the hurt in us stimulates more desire. But the more fear we have, the more we desire to both get rid of the hurt or to dull the hurt, to distract or to dull. And so when we hurt, we tend to want a solution. None of us really want to stay at the place of our our primary emotion, which is hurt or sadness or grief or something of that sort, disappointment. We immediately want a solution for our disappointment, for our hurt. We feel weak when we're sad. And so what happens to a lot of us is we start getting patterns of behavior that we think will satisfy us, but instead they actually cause more guilt, more bitterness, and more fear. So here's what I want to do. Are you with me so far? These are your 10 needs that I've been talking about, your 10 connection needs. Every person needs these. But what I have found is that you can look at what you're afraid of, what your fear is, and by your fear, you can tell what it is you really need. 
So let me, let me give you two of these and kind of unpack them a little bit and then show you how, how big this is. All right, so two of my favorite human needs are acceptance and encouragement. I love these because these are, these are emotional connections that have nothing to do with how well I perform. They're actually very positive regard atmospheres. They're, they're setting up a relationship or setting up a family or setting up even your business where you're already committed that I see this person. I see who they are. I believe in this person. I accept this person whether they fail or succeed. I've chosen this person to be in my life. And then encouragement is that idea that I believe you can do anything. I'm in your corner. I'm already ready before you've even walked out the door to say you have it in you. This is what you were made for. Now, I just described that really well. I'm going to encourage myself right now. You, but the reason I tried to describe it so well is because I want you to understand we all want this. But many, many of us did ha- not have it. Actually, we had the opposite. Instead of acceptance, we felt rejected. We felt like we could never do enough to measure up. Instead of acceptance, we, we sensed that if we just messed up a little bit, if we made a mistake, we would lose love. We would lose that positive regard. And even if it was just a little bit of regard, we were so afraid to lose it. My, my home was not an environment of encouragement. It was not a home of, of, of acceptance whatsoever. My father it felt like you could never satisfy him. So there was this pressure to perform. And I was never doing what he wanted me to do. And that idea always with him was, you're going to fail. You're not going to make it. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the truth right now. And his favorite joke with me was this. Mike, do I pay you to be good? I said, no, Dad, you don't pay me to be good. He said, then you're good for nothing. And so, see, he would laugh and laugh at that joke. I'm 60 years old. I can still feel the pain of my father saying, you're good for nothing. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need these things. You want these things. You flourish best in these things. But because we live in such a fallen world, friends, what you've often got is the opposite, which has created in your heart of fear. Here's what I've learned. If you have something bigger than what you're afraid of, the fear goes right out the window. Perfect love is bigger than fear. And here's here's where I want to apply this to you. Do you understand something? Jesus has so aggressively pursued you with grace. He pursued me in a hotel room where I wanted to end my life. And he said, Mike, and he called me by name and he said, I love you. And he pursued me even when I said, I don't want to be a missionary. I love you. I don't know if I want to be married. I love you. I don't want to go back. I love you. You see, he says, you fear disconnection. He says, don't ever fear it again because I've connected my life to your life. And as long as I exist, you will exist. I've connected my love to your love. And because you are in me, you're loved as if you were me. Do 
you understand to put off the old is to put off the old fear it's to say I will never be disconnected again because I am in Christ but even more than that do you understand you're never powerless again never the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has connected himself and indwelt you so that you have the power within you to say to death, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? You can say, instead of just being a nice Bible verse, it's a reality. If God is for me, who can be against me? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not powerless. I'm empowered. I'm asking you today, put off the guilt. He says you're forgiven. I'm saying to you, put off your bitterness because he says, not only have I forgiven you, but your strength is now there to forgive others. And then he says, look, the main thing, it's time to get rid of the fear. Do you know God says 366 times, do not be afraid in the Bible? I think he's trying to get a point across. If you want to step into your new self, would you stand with me today? stand with me. Stand into who you are. Think about this with me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are you willing today to say that old way of life, that old corrupt desires, all of that, that's not me anymore. That's not who I am. I am this new person. I'm a new woman, a new man in Christ. So if that's something you want to do with me, here's what I want you to do. Put, just put your hand on your heart in a prophetic move. And I want you to say this with me. Jesus, your word is your action. You have spoken to my heart. Forgiveness. I receive your forgiveness. I put off my guilt. I put off my shame. My old self is gone. I put on my new self. I put off my bitterness. Bitterness, you're not my protection. You're not my power. You're not the way I see the world. I have hope. I have faith. I have trust. I have the victory. I don't need bitterness anymore. I put off fear. Fear you're not my friend. Now it's up to you, but it's weird. I kind of see fear almost as a person in this room. And I think you need to say goodbye to it. And I believe at the deepest place, it's you recognize I'll never be disconnected again. Jesus was disconnected so that I am connected to the Father. He was forsaken. I will never be forsaken. And to realize that right now within you is the spirit of the overcomer. And that which is born of God must overcome even the world. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. We just invite his spirit to fill those places that used to be filled with those others. No more ruled by guilt. No more led by bitterness. No more deceived by fear. 
but a new man, a new woman, in true holiness and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked an awful lot of you, but I do feel this. I feel that many of you have said, I am forgiven. I am putting off the guilt, the bitterness, these things. I really would like to ask you to do this, particularly if you've never said that out loud, you've never prayed that out loud. Some of our leaders will be up here at the stage as we finish, and they would love to pray a sealing prayer or a victory prayer with you. Sometimes it's, it's so important not just to do it in your mind, but also to do it in your words. The enemy is subject to your words, not your thoughts. The other thing is this. I know we need to go home. I'm hungry too. But the glory of God is in this room. Uh, there's, a, there's a light of his glory. I, I know I'm weird sometimes, but there's a light of his glory right now. And I, my eyes can't quite handle it. And it's just like Shekinah glory in this room. So whatever you need to have victory in over fear, over guilt, over, over bitterness, today's your day. Don't leave here saying, I'll think about this later. Let your word be like God's word, that when you say it, it's your action. In Jesus' name, amen. So prayer leaders, please come up. And, and any of you that want to pray with someone, please come and pray. God bless you. We'll see you next week.